I hear pages turning. That's a good sound when you're up here. You can find page 303 in a pew Bible if you'd like to have one open. We do have a lot of reading to do today. I've tried to share this morning the good news. But the good news does not come with a guarantee of the good life. You know what I mean? When you come to understand and believe that Jesus' body was broken for you, that doesn't come with a guarantee that your body won't be broken also. Right? Christians get cancer, have car accidents. And I haven't done the research, but I'm pretty sure that stuff happens to Christians at the same rate it happens to everyone else, right? And it's not just diagnoses and, and physical ailments either. When we, when we come to understand that Jesus' body was broken for us, that doesn't protect us from having a broken heart either, we go around the room this morning and collect stories. And we would hear story after story of broken lives, broken bodies, broken hearts, broken promises. Right? So what kind of protection does this Christianity thing give us down here. I mean, are we, are we just stuck waiting our days out till we die and then things get better? I mean, is that, is that the most Christianity has to offer for us? We've come to the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel. And just to get you kind of caught up to speed, a man named David by this point has been chosen by God to be the second king of Israel. He's not king yet, but he's going to be. Now the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul, he's not on board with that plan. We followed along last week as King Saul made hunting and murdering David part of government policy in Israel. And as he began hunting David overtly, the last thing that happened before we pick up today was something miraculous. God just intervened directly into Saul and his men's hunt of David, and he sort of... uh, imposed his will on them, rendered them like incapable of moving, forced them to say things that agreed with God. And and that's the last thing that's happened before we pick up today. So Saul has been hunting David, but Saul has just had an experience with God. Is Saul a changed man? Is Saul going to Stop hunting David? Well, David certainly doesn't think so. 
And so David's going to turn to his best friend, Jonathan, who is King Saul's son and the crown prince and the, the heir to the throne of Israel from a human perspective. David's going to turn to him for some protection. And by looking at the covenant these two men have with each other, David and Jonathan, I think we can learn what the covenant we are in with God can do for us right now today while we continue to live in a broken world. This is another rather long passage, so we're going to break it up. I'm going to do, we're going to do the deal where I read a bit and then we'll talk about it. And I'll read a bit and then we'll talk about it. And that will break up, uh, break up the monotony a little bit this morning. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 20. We'll start with the, the first four verses that read this way. So just after that miraculous rescue by God, where, where God imposed his will on Saul and his men, and they fell to the ground and some other embarrassing things happened to Saul, we read this, then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity or sin? What is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? And Jonathan said back to David, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has obviously said, Do not let Jonathan know my plans or he'll be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's hardly a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Have you ever found yourself in a relationship? Um, it can be a romantic relationship, but it can just be a, a friend, a parent, a child, a sibling. Have you ever found yourself where that relationship has gone south and you don't really know why? Have you ever said either to yourself or even out loud, what have I done like, I would love to fix this, but I don't even know what to fix. It's actually pretty common. That's where David is with King Saul. David doesn't understand why Saul wants to kill him. David is not at any point in this passage trying to discern if Saul is hostile toward him. He knows that. What he doesn't understand is why. And it's no wonder David has been really like the best thing that's ever happened to King Saul as king. But Saul consistently wants to murder him, which is a problem in a relationship. Saul's son comes across as a little naive here, maybe. He thinks maybe his dad has changed. He tries to encourage his friend David. Hey, easy, buddy. But he does demonstrate tremendous faith. He just says, you are not going to die. Why can Jonathan be so sure? Because God has said so. Throughout this passage, Jonathan seems more sure that David's going to survive to be the next king than David does. But 
He also says to David here, if my dad still wanted to kill you, I would know. And remember, last time Jonathan went and talked to his dad and told him, hey, don't kill David, Saul changed. So Jonathan thinks, I would know if dad was planning to kill you, and I, I haven't been told that. David says, buddy, your dad knows how, he knows we're boys. Your dad has decided not to let you in on those plans anymore. In verse 4, this seems out of place, where Jonathan says to David, whatever you say I will do for you, this is Jonathan just reiterating the covenant they, they made a couple chapters ago. Jonathan promised, I am going to be loyal to you, David, over and above my loyalty to my dad, the king. So that's, that's sort of the intro. Let's go on to verse 5. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go away, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly ask leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it's the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. And if your dad, the king, says, that's okay that he's gone, then I am safe. But if the king is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Verse 8, therefore deal kindly with your servant, that's David saying, with me. For you have brought me into a covenant of the Lord with you, Jonathan. And if there's any iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? New moon festivals were a common thing in the ancient world. We can talk about why that is at a a different time. The important thing here is every, at the beginning of each new lunar cycle, every 28 days at the new moon, uh, Saul apparently had a multiple evening business dinner amongst his closest advisors that David usually went to. And David realizes correctly, I can't go because he's trying to kill me. So David devises a test. Jonathan has just said, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. And David said, here's what I want you to do. This is going to be our test. This is not a test to see whether or not Saul wants to kill David. David knows Saul wants to kill David. This is a test to see if Jonathan is still on the inner, in the inner circle of those plans. See, David thinks, if he plans to kill me, the new moon dinner would be a great opportunity. So this test is, you go in there, Jonathan. I'm not going. When your dad asks where I'm at, you tell him this story. Tell him I asked you if I could go to Bethlehem and and you told me that was okay. If your dad says, ah, no big deal, we'll know you're still on the inner circle of the plans. But if your dad gets really furious that I'm not there, we'll know he was going to kill me then. Because he won't be mad because he enjoys my company so much that he will just miss me. He obviously hates me. That's the test. Now, 
one question you might have this morning and as we go forward is that what does David tell Jonathan to do to his dad? What would we call that kind of story? It's a lie. It's not true. Last week, I said what Paul said, we should not do evil so that good may come, right? Well, I just want to help you get in their minds. This is not a... um, it's not of an, an encouragement for this. I just want to let you know, uh, in Jewish tradition, Israelite tradition, and we know this later written down in works like the Talmud, in Israelite thought, a lie was permissible under the law if it saved innocent life. So that's their thought. I'm not, now, not if it made innocent life's life more easy or uh, avoided discomfort, but if it saved innocent life, the religious authorities had decided lies were okay. Okay? So that's why David's going to be okay lying as we go forward because he is innocent life as it comes to Saul. Verse 10. Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me whether your father's mad or not with my absence? Jonathan said to David, come, let's go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And then Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there's a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been uh, with my father. First thing I I want you to notice here, because it's going to be important in a second. David's question is, basically, how am I going to learn whether or not your dad is okay with my absence, whether or not you are still on the inner circle, if if you can provide me any safety? Jonathan doesn't really answer that question yet. We're going to come back to that. In verse 11, Jonathan's not ready. He's not ready to talk about that part of the plan yet. He says, first, let's get out of here and go out in the middle of a field where we know we're not being listened to. But then he wants to talk about his loyalty to David. Um, Because David, throughout this passage, he kind of questions Jonathan's loyalty a bit. And so Jonathan wants to reiterate it. And listen, I don't blame David for that. David's incredibly vulnerable. The smart thing from a worldly perspective for Jonathan to do would be to eliminate David. Because then Jonathan can be king. So, Jonathan says, I'm going to tell you, buddy. I'm on your side. Jonathan expresses the seriousness of his loyalty by saying, buddy, if I double-cross you, God should do worse to me than anything my dad does to you. Right? just re-expresses his loyalty. Verse 14. Jonathan's still speaking here. 
He says, if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. And even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. I reworded that verse a little bit from Verse 17, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as his own life. Okay, a second ago, David took the conversation in a different direction, questioned Jonathan's loyalty. Now it's Jonathan's turn. If we were writing this as a movie script today, here's what Jonathan just said to David. I understand you're questioning my loyalty and you're very vulnerable and I get all that and I'm going to be loyal to you. But listen, buddy, you're not the only one who's taking some risks here. Not only could my dad kill me for what I'm doing, but let me remind you something, Dave. You are the one that has God's promise that you are going to survive this. You are going to be king. Part of this may be, and maybe you should act like you believe that. Jonathan says, I don't have such a promise. And you know, the shoe's going to be on the other foot at some point. Because when you are king, and the Lord removes all the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You know what that's a figure of speech for? That's regime change. That's the way regime change worked in the old world. When one royal family is no longer on the throne and a new royal family comes to power, guess what happens to the old royal family? They, wake up, they start waking up with horse heads in bed beside them, right? right? They get stuffed in the trunk of 1970s Cadillacs, driven out in the desert. You've seen the movies. Don't watch those movies. They're terrible. Right, do you see what Jonathan is saying? So Jonathan says, how about you show some loyalty to me? When you get to be king and the enemies of David start getting killed, how about you give me your word, I won't be among them. And Jonathan makes David vow. Some mutual love for him. And David does. He vows to protect Jonathan and Jonathan's household. He's going to keep that vow, but it'll be a while before we get there. All right, now we finally hear about the plan David asked about in verse 10. Um, in verse 10, David, how am I going to know whether your dad is angry with me and I need to run away or, or if we're okay here and, and you can be some protection? Verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go out quickly and come to that place we know about where you've hid before. Excuse me. And you shall remain by the stone Ezel. Verse 20. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I was doing some target practice. 
And behold, I'll send the lad saying, go find the arrows. And if I specifically say to the lad when you're hiding out in that field, hey, the, the arrows are on that side of you. Go to your right, go to your left. That'll be the signal for you to know there's safety. My father means you no harm. Verse 22. But if I say to the youth, behold, the arrows are beyond you. Keep going farther. That's my signal to you that you need to run away. Um, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. You hear the plan there? Jonathan says, go hide by the stone of Azel. I'll come out, shoot some, some arrows with my bow like target practice. And this will be my signal that I tell the, the kid that goes and chases my arrows to let you know the story there. Verse 24. So David hid in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat at his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. By the, way, the Hebrew doesn't give us extra details in stories. We're not just being told the seating arrangement there. Usually the king sat in the middle, right? Why would he sit by the wall? Because he's paranoid, right? He's sitting in the corner with his back to the wall. Um, then Jonathan rose up and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul didn't say anything the first night. He thought, eh, it's an accident. It's probably explainable. He's ceremonially unclean, which could happen really easily. And we won't go into how that could happen or why that would keep David away. But it would be a good, Saul doesn't think much of it the first night. Verse 27. The next day, however, the second day of the new moon, David's place was empty. And, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away so I may go see my brother. And that's the reason, dad, that David's not at the king's table. So Saul notices his absence. No big deal the first night. Second night, he starts to smell a rat. He asks Jonathan. Jonathan puts David's test plan into motion. And now we're going to see how Saul responds. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Verse 32, But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should David be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul hurled his spear at his son Jonathan to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had like decided firmly, no changing his mind, to put David to death. And Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and he did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Okay. So it turns out King Saul is not dumb. Evil? Sure. Dumb? No. 
he realizes immediately what is going on. His son has helped David escape. Jonathan has been more loyal to David than he has been loyal to him, which is exactly why Saul didn't what? He didn't tell Jonathan this was a trap the whole time. He's not happy about it, and so now he's going to use shame, guilt, and greed to try to convince Jonathan to sort of come over to the dark side. There's some very Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader uh, overtones to this. He begins by saying basically the ancient Hebrew equivalent of, Jonathan, you are just like your mother sometimes. Let me just call time out for one second from the story and say parents grandparents if you ever fall into the trap where you tend to say you are just you remind me so much of your father or mother can I just encourage you to quit that and never do that again and ask for forgiveness and tell your young one you were wrong It does not raise you in the esteem of your child. It demeans your child. It confuses your child. It demeans half of them, their other parent, and it just makes them think you hate them. And then years later, they come in my office with an eating disorder and wanting to kill themselves. Back to our story. That was at no extra charge. That was, uh, that was, uh... he goes on. Uh, Do I not know you're, you're, you're loyal to David? I know, Jonathan. And then he says the ancient Hebrew, this whole mother, mother's nakedness thing. Here's what he says there. This family should be ashamed your mom ever conceived you or gave birth to you. Then he calls him stupid. Are you so stupid that you don't realize only one of you and your buddy David can can be the next king? And don't think you can be king and David will be okay. You won't be safe for one day until he's dead. Then he gives the order. You see what Saul ordered his son to do? Maybe it's not on the screen here. Um, I missed it. Therefore, send and bring him to me. He orders Jonathan to bait the trap. I know he trusts you. You can get him in here. Verse 32, Jonathan does something very courageous. He opposes the sovereign king of Israel to his face in front of his closest men. Why? Tell me one thing David has done. Saul's only answer is to throw a spear at his son 
to strike him down, to kill him. If your dad had done that to you, would that be upsetting? Jonathan's upset too. He gets up in in fierce anger. But pay attention what he's angry about. Does he run out of there because my dad just humiliated me in front of the highest men in, in, the, in the land? And my dad just tried to kill me? He had every reason to be upset about those things. But look at what he's upset about. My dad is dishonoring the real king. And now the poignant conclusion, beginning in verse 35. Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out to the field for the appointment with David. And a little lad was with Jonathan. Jonathan said to the kid, hey, run now and find the arrows which I'm about to shoot. As the lad was running, uh, Jonathan shot an arrow past him. When the lad got close to where the arrow was, Jonathan called out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And then Jonathan called out after the lad, hurry, be quick, do not stay, it's worse than I thought, he'll kill me too. Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and, and came to his master. Verse 39, but the lad was not aware of anything, only Jonathan David knew about this. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and and said to him, and go bring those into the city. And when the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and and came to Jonathan. He fell on his face to the ground. He bowed three times and they kissed each other and they wept wept together. But David wept more. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. If your Bible doesn't have the word peace there, write it in. It's in the Hebrew, shalom. Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed. So David ran away and Jonathan went back into town. So the appointed day, Jonathan went to the appointed place where he knew David would be. And they made... Jonathan made this part of the plan because he needed a way to get the message to David even if he had been followed out there. I mean, things didn't go well. Did you pick up on that at the New Moon Festival for Jonathan? Would it have been possible for King Saul to say, you know what, somebody's got to follow my son around. Somebody's got to go with him. Maybe the king says, I think I'm going to go shoot bow and arrows with you this morning, son. It's good for fathers and sons to do things together. So they need a way for Jonathan to give the signal to David if it's not safe to give David the signal. But once they're out there and he does this and he looks around and he knows we're alone, well, now I can go see my friend. But this is David's most vulnerable point. David's no dummy. David knows King Saul would have done everything he could, put whatever pressure he could on Jonathan to kill him. So you notice what Jonathan does before he goes to meet his his friend. He disarms himself. He takes all of his weapons off, gives them to the kid and says, 
take these back to town because I want my friend to be able to trust me. That, like, that's what accountability is for right there. It's not that Jonathan doesn't trust himself with the weapons. He wants to demonstrate to David, you can trust me. And then this, you know, for my money, this is the best part of the David and Jonathan story, this chapter. And their, their parting is the best part of the best part. When they get together, David prostrates himself before Jonathan. Um, Dr. Davis, whose commentary I'm reading in this, he says nowhere else in the Bible is there one person that bows three times before another person or before God or anything. This is David. And they both weep, right? They hug, they embrace. They do their, their normal Middle Eastern greeting and departing kisses on the cheek. But this is David weeps more. This is David bowing and saying, I, I understand what you are risking and giving up out of loyalty to me. Three, I know, I understand, I see it. You're a, you're a better dude than I gave you credit for. I am sorry I ever doubted you, Jonathan. It's so, it's moving to read this and picture it. And then Jonathan says something that doesn't make a lick of sense. He says, go in peace. Shalom. Go in uh, a sense of well-being and wholeness and completeness. I'm sorry, what? The, the, the weight of the entire government is going to stop at nothing to murder me. I probably will never see the only person on earth who's actually loyal to me. They will see each other again, but they didn't know that at the time. Right? I'm going to be on the run the rest of my life, maybe. And buddy, your, your advice is go with a sense of well-being and And they get up and David runs away and Jonathan goes back to town and curtain closes and the story is over. What do we learn from that passage? Besides, this is a great movie we just watched. What do we learn? First, real peace comes from being in the right covenant. At the beginning of our time, I talked about what accepting Christ. It doesn't keep me from getting sick. It doesn't keep my kids from doing dumb things. Right? It doesn't keep uh, the car accident from happening. It doesn't keep... So down here on earth, what does this do for me? It's exactly what Jonathan said at the end. I want to begin at the end. Jonathan says to his buddy in this horrifically painful goodbye, but if we can leave, do you feel peace in your heart? Because I do. We have, we're in the right covenant, David. 
a covenant with each other, but mainly that one comes out of our covenant with our God. We are doing the right things for the right God at the right time for the right reasons, and it's always going to be worth it. And no matter what's happening around me, I got to tell you, I just have a a peace about the whole thing. Have you ever felt that? That's what being in covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ does for us. We used to have this thing hanging in our house. It's been a long time since I mentioned it. It said, sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes God lets the storm rage and calms his child. That's the peace that the gospel gives us. It doesn't fix all our circumstances, but it can give us a sense of well-being, peace, where be, we're doing what is right when everything else is falling apart. This is why Jesus, at the very end of his life, when his disciples were confused and scared, and I don't know what is going on, Jesus said this, in me you have peace. Not someday, not rest in peace. In me you have peace. When? At the same time when in the world you will have tribulation. You can be of good cheer when? When you're in tribulation in an evil world. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Real peace doesn't come when we can figure out how to arrange all the circumstances of our life to where no pain can get its way in. No. Real peace comes from being in the right covenant with the right king. That's the first thing this passage teaches. Second, this passage teaches that the covenant you are in should determine the kingdom that you fight for. I got to tell you, I love Jonathan so much. I hope someday I get to get a cup of coffee in heaven with Jonathan. And by the way, yes, I hope there is coffee in heaven. Jonathan's dad yelled at his son and said, are you so stupid you don't realize that as long as David is alive on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established? Was he right or wrong? He's exactly right. Saul was not wrong in telling Jonathan, only one of you can be king. Where Saul was wrong is a couple things. First, Jonathan wasn't interested in seeing his kingdom established. He had already thrown his eggs in the basket of another kingdom. He wanted to see David's kingdom established. David on the throne. Jesus told us, those of us who are in covenant with him, we're not supposed to be seeking and building our kingdoms either. Jesus said, seek first not first in order, first in importance, primarily. Seek his kingdom as opposed to my kingdom. Seek what he says righteousness looks like, not what the world or I can convince myself is righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. The stuff that you thought that stuff would give you, God will actually give us in his time. You want security? 
You want to feel loved. You want to feel adored. You want to have purpose. God will give you what your heart really seeks. And he's the king. He can give it. Now, I don't want us to be naive. Living in covenant with Jesus faithfully and, and, and fighting for, to see his kingdom established and him glorified can be really hard. And it can require us to do things that other people around us will think is really stupid. Do you think there were some guys in King Saul's inner circle, even though they liked David and respected David, were sitting there thinking, you know, Jonathan, your dad's kind of got a point. It's the way the world works. You kill the other guy so he can't be king. Duh. If we are going to focus on his kingdom, sometimes we have to give up things, have to do things, but the, uh, the rest of the world will, will, will think we're dumb. And the rest of the world might use shame, guilt, and greed to try to change us into its mold. It's the same playbook. It's been happening for eons. The last thing King Saul was wrong about, though, is when he told his son, you are helping him to your own shame. Don't believe that one for a second. Don't believe that one for a second. If we will focus our lives and our energy on his kingdom, someday shame will be the furthest thing from what you will earn from those activities, those investments, those priorities. The shame will come when we have spent our life chasing what the world used shame and greed and guilt to get us into its mold. The covenant you are in should determine the kingdom that you fight for. And since that's so hard sometimes, I'm glad this last, this last one is, uh, is in here. Third, the good king is still touched by sacrificial loyalty. That part at the end of this story when David is just so moved of what Jonathan is willing to risk and give up for me, so moving. Folks, I want you to know that I am convinced that David's great, 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 great grandson Jesus still today is touched and moved just like his great-granddaddy David was, when people who, are in, who have pledged loyalty to him like put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, when they take risks to see his kingdom advanced, when they, when they do things the rest of the world seems would say is stupid for what's best for Jesus and his name and his kingdom. That stuff is hard but the good king is still touched and moved when people who love him are motivated enough to live that way.
no matter what anyone else says. And you know, I didn't put this on the screen, but in there when Jonathan said, you're not the only one taking risks here, king. How about you pledge some loyalty here? How about I have a guarantee that when you get to be king, I won't be among the dead guys? We get that too. It's okay to say that. Hey, it's okay when you're faced with something, God, the world would tell me to do this, that this is a smart thing to do, but I know you would say this. Do I have the guarantee someday this will be worth it? Do I have your pledge that when the enemies of the good king are wiped from the earth, I won't be, enough, I won't be among them? Listen, Jesus has already made that pledge to you, and you better believe it is true. It's okay to make decisions that way. Talk to him about it. Take a deep breath. Do what would honor the king. And know, ultimately, he has got your back. He notices. But the covenant you're in is what should determine the kingdom you fight for. And real peace comes from being in the right covenant and letting that control your heart and your life. Let's pray. Father and our God, thank you so much again for this ancient text. It is 3,000 years old, which sure seems old to us, God, though it's a blip to you. And it is so contemporary. It's amazing, God. It's like, it's, it's like we could make this movie or this TV show right now today. And that's because you haven't changed and people haven't changed. God, for folks here who are not in covenant with you through faith in Jesus Christ, I pray you'd move in their hearts to bring them into covenant with you. For those of us who have made that step, God, I pray you would give us the courage to let the covenant we are in be what controls our lives. Thank you that you still see and recognize things that folks down here do out of loyalty to you when it's hard. And thank you for the guarantee we have that one day the enemies of Jesus Christ will be wiped from the face of the earth and we will not be among them if we are in covenant with you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.